Hey everyone, I'm back with Mind Rolling, and uh, I'm here with old friend, old old friend, who we we have so many um, parallel things in our lives and people. It's uh, pretty amazing. So, Mark Epstein, welcome back. Wow, what a treat! Thank you, Raghu. <laughs> so, Mark's just uh, got a new book out, and uh, it's called The Zen of Therapy. Uncovering a hidden kindness in life, which immediately makes us think, uh, me think rather, of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who uh, has that uh, phenomenal uh, saying that's a bumper sticker you see everywhere, kindness is my only religion. So, Oh, it's so chock full of great, great things, Mark. Glad you uh, you wrote this book, and you know, sharing all of and thanks to all of the patients because uh, Mark has in here many different uh, experiences with patients that really uh, lend itself to. Oh, yeah, you go. Oh, yeah, I got yes. <laughs> some people, some people say that, Roger. <laughs> I'm I'm glad I'm glad that uh, that that um, that you could relate. Oh, what do you mean? Some people say some people. Not everyone sees themselves in the oh, really? <laughs> in in all of it. In all of it. Oh God! Well, to me, that's the beginning of a little bit of intransience to not being able to feel the uh, polarization and what that really means. It's a way of cutting ourselves off, is the way I see it. But. Uh, Oh boy! So, all right. Well, let's start with um, how did you come to even get the idea to do something like this? Well, if you really want to know, <laughs> inquiring um, minds want yes. to know. Um, I, I I always have tried to set aside one one day a week uh, for for writing. Mm. Um, the rest of the time, I'm seeing patients. And, um, I finished, I finished my last book some number of years ago, probably four years ago or so. Um, and that one day of writing was looming and I, and I had no idea what I was going to write about, uh, or if I even had anything left to say. So I decided that, uh, in lieu of writing another book, what I would try to do, uh, would be to write down uh, the details as much as I could recollect them of one psychotherapy session that I had had uh, that week, uh, where, uh, possibly the spiritual influence or the Buddhist influence or the meditation influence on my, uh, process on my thinking was influencing the way that the session unfolded. Um, and, uh, so I tried, uh, I did that very, very religiously, although it's not my, um, I usually don't take notes in my sessions. Usually really? I'm, you know, I, I let, I, you know, I trust what happens and then let the session go. So it was a switch for me to, uh, you know, pick out one session and in, immediately when it was over, I would, I would have, I, I would like, uh, say, oh, that this is the one. And I would try to write down, uh, as, you know, as, as concretely as as literally as possible, what happened in the session, and then during my writing time, which was usually the following week, I I tried to write it up in as as literary uh, manner as I could, mm. um, and I did that for a year, 
And, and it was mostly in, started late 2018. It was mostly in 2019. Uh, and when I, when I got to the end of the year, I was like, this is enough. Um, and I, I had a stack of them by then. Uh, and I hadn't looked them over. I, I, I really had to sort of force myself to, uh, to do this. I hadn't read them over. After a year, I read them over. And, and I thought, oh, this is actually sort of interesting because it, it, uh, they managed to capture the, um, the quotidian. I never knew what that word meant, but I, now I know. It, mean, yeah. it mean, means like the everyday, the ordinary. It managed to capture the quotidian aspect of therapy. You know, like mm. it, it's not, it's not so often that you uncover the hidden trauma that has made you who you are, but it's more about like, the little argument that I had with my partner or what, you know, what I was worrying about before I went to sleep or so anyway. Um, so I had the year's worth of sessions, which I then showed to my editor uh, who did the last two books with me, who I really trust, who's been a wonderful editor. Mm. And she read it over and said, yeah, I, I think maybe there's something here. But, uh, you know, the only through line is you because the patients are all chosen randomly. It wasn't like I followed one patient for a year or anything. Mm. So she said, what, what we're really going to be interested in is hearing what you were thinking, what you were feeling, what was making you, what was going on in the back of your mind during these sessions. And um, I, I always listen to her. She's always been right in what she says. So I took that on. And then COVID, it was right around when COVID was descending. I think I showed it to her in February and then COVID happened in March. So then I had that um, more introspective time of being in quarantine and so on. Mm. You know, I, all my, I, I was always against virtual therapy. I insisted that my patients come to see me in the I office. I know now, all about that. Now, now <laughs> yes. Uh, so anyway, so then in the next, through the next year, I went through the sessions and I really tried to write a reflection or a commentary, uh, about each one. But like um, parting the curtain a little bit on my own process to show mm. what I would, what my influences were and yeah. what I might have been mm. thinking about. Mm. And so that's the heart of the book. It's uh, a year's worth of these psychotherapy sessions and then my reflection, uh, my commentary about uh, what it's really like to be a therapist trying to be real uh, with, with my patients and not hiding the spiritual aspect of things if it seems relevant. Mm. Well, I would be a little bit more, shall we say, uh, praise is due here. Okay. Because of the way that you elucidate these sessions and the way that you bring in core. And that's what I said at the very beginning. Listen, I, 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 read some of these stories and, you know, I'm there with all of them. It's all, and I believe it's all in all of us. It's just to some degree we have gotten, the good thing about aging is a, a little bit of detachment and spaciousness around reacting to stuff and so on and being caught and realizing the habitual patterns and so on, but it's all there. And the way that you contextualize a, a lot of this uh, is extraordinarily helpful, Mark. It's really, really great. Uh, well, uh, I really appreciate that, Raghu. The, the thing that was interesting for me um, was that these were sessions that I think I probably would have forgotten. You know, they would have mm -hmm. just flow, flown by or, uh, you, you know, uh, but because I 
captured them, which is sort of an anti-Buddhist thing to be doing, you know, trying to, <laughs> but uh, whatever, um, be- because I was preserving them and then um, uh, sending them to the patients to look at, you know, like, is this what you remember? And is this okay that I say this? And, and then uh, sending them my commentaries that the, the sessions actually became uh, like what, the reason that I ended up calling it the Zen of therapy, one reason is that each session became like a haiku, uh, you know, or a koan that, it, that in the little details, so much could be revealed that, mm. that if I hadn't stopped and, you know, and really focused on them, I, I, I would have missed it. My patients would have missed it. So I think that most of, most people who I, um, uh, who I sent the sessions to, they ended up really appreciating it because they actually heard more from me mm. about what I thought than they might have yeah. in the actual session, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so that, that was actually fascinating and mm. not something I was expecting. Mm. One of the premises here, and it's one of my favorite things that comes from uh, Buddha uh, that you reported, uh, was the conversation with Ananda, his close friend and personal yeah. attendant, um, I'll just read a little. He, Ananda began by rather exuberantly declaring to the Buddha as if he had just had an important realization, this is half the holy life, Lord. Admirable friendship, admirable companionship, and admirable camaraderie. The Buddha, as he often did in his conversations with Ananda, that's <laughs> kind of funny too, admonished him in return. Don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that. He explained, exclaimed, admirable friendship, admirable companionship, admirable camaraderie is actually the whole of the holy life. And that is a major premise. Uh, the, we are all just walking each other home. Walking is, each uh, other home. Somebody Didn't else said that? say that? <laughs> somebody yeah. else said that? So uh, I really appreciate that. Um, yeah. Well, I try to talk about this concept of the spiritual friend, you know, mm. the, uh, Kalyana Mitra, mm. that uh, come, comes out of Buddhism, uh, and imagining that a therapist could actually be a spiritual friend, which is something you know that I always felt from Ramdas. I, I, mm. I was I was lucky enough to have met Ramdas when I was you know twenty years old, and then to have had a relationship with him basically up until the year before he died. And I always felt that way with him. Like, you know, like I looked up to him and he was a, sort of a father figure, a therapist figure, a spiritual figure, but really, you know, spiritual friend. So I think, I think in some way I was trying to embody that. I've been trying to embody mm. that for my own patients. Yeah. Now there's something here that I didn't know about. Uh, which was uh, your relationship with uh, Dr. Uh, Benson, Herbert Benson. Oh, yeah. Who is a seminal figure from back in the day. Um, and, uh, yeah, t- just give us a little bit of a picture of, of sure. what that was like. Because it went through some, um, it evolved into it a evolved. place w- that was, um, that kept you at odds to some degree. Yeah. Um well, to just to give you a little bit of the history, yeah. Uh, Herbert Benson uh, is and was a uh, cardiologist, very well respected cardiologist at uh, Harvard Medical School, 
um, who was really the first uh, researcher to do measurements of uh, people in meditation. He worked with uh, transcendental meditation in the days of the Maharishi in the late 60s mm. and early 70s. And uh, he did the first research that showed that uh, you know, 20 minutes of transcendental meditation could uh, lower, lower blood pressure um, and uh, evoke what he came to call the relaxation response, which he said was the physiological opposite of the fight or flight response, which is like the, you know, trauma, get, you know, adrenaline and epinephrine gets you revved up. He proposed that meditation uh, stimulated not the sympathetic nervous system, but the parasympathetic nervous system, so which is about rest and relaxation. And uh, he measured oxy oxygen consumption and carbon dioxide output in a bunch of meditators and did good research and had it published and became a famous... Uh, 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 famous medical figure, you know, in the, the very dawn of the wellness and new age movement. Kind mm. of, uh, he was kind of ostracized at Harvard Medical School for being interested in this kind of stuff. Um, but he, he, he went forward with it. And then he broke with the Maharishi. He decided that, uh, the secret mantra was not really the, uh, all important thing and that any word that you repeated over and over again would do. And he chose what he thought was a non-denominational word, the word one, the number one, which he had people repeating and until much later when he realized all the spiritual implications of uh, right. choosing the word one. But anyway, so um, I was in college. Uh, I, I discovered Buddhism in college, taking uh, religion and psychophysiology courses. And my father, who was... Uh, a professor of medicine, first at Yale and then also at Harvard, was, I think, a little worried that I was going too far off the deep end. And um, he, he said to me uh, uh, before the summer of my sophomore year, oh, there's this guy working for me, uh, Herb Benson, who's interested in this kind of stuff. Why don't you meet with him? Maybe he could give you a summer job or something. So I I uh, went ahead and met with him, and I knew that uh, Dr. Benson was doing my father a favor, but I think he was more, he was sort of surprised that he liked me, and that maybe I had something, you know, something to offer him. And I went to work for him that summer. I did a research project with him about the placebo effect, um, which is, you know, if you give a, an inert uh, pill to someone with an illness, a third of the time, people will get better from uh, just the inert pill. So what was that about? Um, but I stay, I worked with him that summer, but then stayed, uh, I became like the sort of uh, underground counterculture spiritual uh, investigator, you know, uh, for him. So I would go off to Naropa or go to India and then come back and report to Dr. Benson about uh, what was going on in the spiritual world. Mm. And um, we, we kept up a collaboration uh, and um, until finally he one year was reading the books of Alexandra David Neal, one of the first French explorers of Tibet. Magic and Mystery in Ancient yeah. Tibet was the book. Yeah, I love it. Great book. And uh, she, she writes in there about Tibetan monks who mm. learn to fly and <clears throat> who also learn to uh, do what's called heat yoga, where they could sit outside naked in the uh, icy uh, Himalayas and dry 
wet sheets uh, with the heat of their bodies. So Dr. Benson wanted to know if I knew anything about this. Um, and I said, no, I hadn't heard about any of this yet, but, uh, uh, but you know who we could ask? The Dalai Lama is about to come to the United States on his first visit because I knew he was coming to Barry to the Insight Meditation mm. Society for the first, it was his first visit to the U.S. I said, I bet with your Harvard Medical School credentials, you know, the, the Dalai Lama loves scientists. I bet we could get a meeting. Um, so, uh, so we did. And, uh, Dr. Benson proposed to the Dalai Lama that we, uh, bring a research team to India to measure the monks doing the heat yoga. The, the Dalai Lama wouldn't admit to any monks who learned how to fly, but he did, he did say <laughs> that, yes, we do this heat yoga thing, mm. but it's, uh, uh, it's not for public consumption. It's a secret practice. You know, it's not, it's not mm. really about the miracle. It's meant to be used uh, in the journey to enlightenment. But then he sort of relented because he thought it would be a good public relations thing for Tibet, I think. Mm. Um, so we did all that. We, we, Dr. Benson got a grant and we gathered a team. And when I was in medical school by this point and we went to India and measured uh, three monks who were in solitary retreat in the hills above Dharamsala, where the Dalai Lama's palace in uh, exile is. And um, uh, Dr. Benson and I had somewhat of a divergent orientation on this research trip. He just wanted to get in there and measure the rectal temperatures of the, of the monks and uh, do the research and get out. And I was more interested than he wanted me to be in actually talking yeah. to the monks about mm. what they were doing. We had a good translator, Jeffrey Hopkins, a professor oh. of Tibetan mm. studies, yeah. then in Virginia, mm. came with us. Um, so uh, I wrote in the book that, you know, I was more interested, it turned out, in the art of meditation than uh, only in the science of meditation. Um, and uh, Dr. Benson and I went our separate ways after that first, that first research trip. But... Altogether, we collaborated for about seven years, and it was, mm. I think, important, certainly important for me, and I'm very grateful to him for, um, you know, he really got me started. Mm. Yeah. And uh, there's one, one thing that's interesting as well, you know, people that you met up with, uh, one of them was Diana Eck, I'm talking about at Harvard, and the other, yeah. of course, was our friend, uh, Danny, Danny, Danny Goldman. Goldman, yeah, yeah. Who, they were both in my in my freshman year at, in college. They were both graduate students who were like the teaching fellows, and one in the religion class and one in the psychology class. So there was this kind. of... Diana Eck wrote a beautiful book about Benares. She became a professor of religion, and uh, Danny Goldman wrote a beautiful book called Emotional Intelligence, and which you know, everybody should read out there if they if they haven't already. Uh, yeah, they haven't already, or read it again, especially in these times of absolutely the opposite of emotional intelligence the, going on with many people. The other thing, Raghu, about um, you know, for for the listeners in in your neck of the woods, uh, on that that trip to India with Dr. Benson to measure the monks. Um, before Dr. Benson came, uh, I was in India for a, a month or so uh, before he got there. And one of the reasons for my going earlier was to go to Neem Karoli Baba's ashram in uh, 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 Brindavan, which was just opening. And uh, I got to be there with Krishnadas and Chaitanya and Mirabai mm -hmm. 
and uh, to meet uh, uh, Tuari um, in particular, one of one of Neem Karoli Baba's. I'm sure you knew all these people, but um, Neem Karoli Baba had died by the time I came onto the scene. But but Tuari, who had a special relationship with Krishnadas, was there at the uh, opening of this temple, and I got to spend a lot of time in. Uh, this little room in the temple that Tuari was in, uh, where he would be chanting with Krishnadas. And uh, he, he couldn't believe I was uh, in medical school and about to be a doctor. And he kept calling me doctor boy because <laughs> of uh, how, how young I looked. And I loved that he liked me and was calling me doctor boy. So I, by the time I got to Dharamsala to do the research, I was already sort of inculcated into a spiritual, you know, Indian mm. temple worldview. And right. I think that was part of what, uh, where Dr. Benson and I were, you know, operating on slightly different levels yeah. Uh, yeah. during that time. But It's funny you mentioned KC Tuari because we just are about to lock a documentary that we've been working on for four years, Krishna Asai and a couple of others several other people, yeah. that uh, we have footage of him from back in the day. I don't know. What what year was it that you went? 81. 81. 81. Well, oh, yeah, you were you were there much earlier. Uh, in 89-90, a friend of ours went over with a camcorder and got a bunch of incredible footage of him. And then we did a bunch of interviews, Krishnadas and myself and others. That's wonderful. Yeah, we had so. a cam- I had a camcorder with me when, when uh, I went. But I don't know what happened to the footage. It's, oh, it's God. disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. I know. Oh. Um, oh, Diana Eck. I just yeah. wanted to say, I didn't, I went to India at one point in the mid 80s. I went, I've gone a lot, not quite as much as Krishnadas, but pretty much almost. Mm-hmm. And um, I went, I took my mom really? to India. We actually went on a yatra, a pilgrimage with KC. The three of us up really? into the Himalayas. Yeah, that's a whole other story. That was phenomenal. But uh, we were in Benares, and somebody handed me that book that oh. you are talking about, her Diana X book. And uh, at that time, it was very difficult to get into many of the temples that you you were considered. Um, untouchable, basically, Westerners, and they would yeah. not allow you into, you know, it was very, very thick with that Brahmin thing, and, yeah. you know, cast and all that. But in this book, she said, well, you might, you know, the, with, the reference was the Vishwanath temple, which was a Shiva temple we could not get into. And she said, but there's one mother temple, mother goddess temple, that is as powerful as this the Shiva temple, and and she gave some kind of gauzy thing about where the hell it was. It's on the river. It's just off the river. You go through some alleys and so Anyhow, my mother was sick actually that day, and I went off and I found this place, and I walked in. It was this golden statue of, uh, of a, I think, a benign uh, image of the goddess Durga, basically, mm-hmm. and uh, of complete benevolence and um, uh, just total uh, the shade of compassion which you could stand under. I went up to the, to this Morty, and I wasn't into Mortys, kind of like Ramdas said when he first went to India, eh, 
he was more a Buddhist. He wasn't into all the Hindu, you know, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Anyhow, I was kind of like that, but I, I just loved her book and I went there and, uh, and the priest, as soon as he saw me, rather than reject me, he was like, come on over here, you know, and he put me right in front and I, one of the very few times in my life that I have had that transcendental experience with, uh, you know, a piece of a, a stone statue. or in this a yeah. statue. Yeah. And it was extraordinary to this day. I've had some, yeah, I don't know what a relationship, fantastic. what you say about a relationship. But yeah, I, I always say think, it's a relationship, yeah. of course. But I Everything's think, a relationship. Yeah, everything is a relationship. But yeah. I, I have no real understanding of it yeah. other than the gut, you know, yeah. that behind rational. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I have Diana Eck to thank. To well, thank. I would always that's hope fantastic. one day I would, I would meet her. She's still at Harvard, I think. I think she must be. Yeah. She, be she became master of one of the houses, you know, the first, uh-huh. first female master. Of, oh, really? Oh, yeah, cool. one, of the, one of the undergraduate houses, yeah. Lowell so House. When I read that, that just brought me back into that moment. It was so great. That's wonderful. Um, you know, there's something here that in the podcast that I do or at the retreats that we do, you know, this is a, you have brought up a pretty much a favorite subject of mine. Um, and you, you talk about, uh, just as you were getting into doing the psychotherapy that you do now, you say, I was suspicious of the nascent wellness movement and of the new age drive for inner peace and reluctant to see happiness, as which the, you had quoted the Dalai Lama saying the purpose of life is to be happy as the ultimate purpose of life. I, I work with a lot of people drawn to Eastern thought who are hoping to leapfrog over their personal issues by using meditation to calm the mind the way I was hoping to get rid of myself, and this is your own experience with the mm. Dalai Lama, I realized that a spa treatment <laughs> like that is often what people want from meditation and that it was often being sold as such. But I could tell from my own meditation that relaxation, while an occasional benefit, was not always accessible on demand. Um, so... This thing that we have so strongly here, which is why I do talk about it with, with various people and we bring it up a lot, and it's more or less known as a spiritual bypass, basically. Talk about this a little bit because it is extraordinary, extraordinarily important in my mind that uh, many people, I don't need any therapy. I don't need to attend to you know these uh, issues from my earlier part of my life. I just need to get into that place of peace and oneness, and it'll all naturally un- unfold. That is, um, I think, really missing the point. Um, well, I can answer. I can talk about that in a, in a couple of different ways. The the first way that comes to mind is um, uh, that early time of mine with Dr. Benson where um, he was uh, letting people know how meditation could be used for its practical health benefits, um, showed me uh, right away how our culture, you know, could relate to meditation if it would lead to relaxation, you you know. Uh, But people, including Dr. Benson, 
we're less interested in the more nuanced, but more psychological, more emotional, more spiritual aspects of what meditation could do. So it was, there was a kind of reduction of meditation, you know, funneling it into, uh, let's lower the blood pressure. Let's teach yeah. you how to relax yeah. kind of thing. Mm. So, so right away I would, I was drawn to that because I needed to relax. Um, so I could understand the appeal. Uh, but the more I got into it for myself, the more I saw that that was really, you know, if relaxation came, you could, it didn't always come. If it did come, that was super nice, but that really wasn't the point. And that to, you know, to do it only for that reason was, um, at best to, to miss a lot of what it could do. And at worst to kind of set yourself up to be disappointed. So I think that was the beginning. Then I was fortunate enough in my own journey, in my own search to meet, uh, a, a lot of the, um, uh, a lot of the people who are a generation older than I was who were responsible for introducing meditation, spiritual life in, into this country. So in, including Ram Dass, Joseph Goldstein, Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, you know, on and on. And uh, because of the peculiarities of my own uh, uh, situation, I think I got to know a lot of those people uh, personally as friends. Mm -hmm. And I could see that uh, meditation, spiritual life, etc., had not solved all of their problems. You, you know, that uh, at best it had opened them up so that they could be more transparent about about their various issues. You know, not so ashamed, not so pretending, uh, but uh, but definitely, you know, a lot of those people not the ones I've named in particular, but, you, you know, a lot of the people could use therapy also, you know? Yeah. Um, but I found that to be a great relief because in getting to know those people as people, I realized, oh, I can just be myself, whoever that turns out to be, you know? And um, if I need therapy, I can have therapy. It doesn't have to complement the meditation. It doesn't have to be opposed to the meditation. Mm -hmm. So right, So right from the beginning... You, you know, of my path, that that's how I was looking at things. And then, you, you know, in those days, meditation was still a sort of fringe thing. But as it's been integrated much more into the culture, I think that what I saw originally with Dr. Benson uh, has been true in a psychological way also. So that, you know, as mindfulness has sort of conquered the psychotherapy world, now, now uh, <laughs> like you you young therapists, you know, they mm. want to be mindfulness-based therapists. Mm. Um, but, uh, and they're not so interested in the psychodynamic world, the, you know, this whole psychoanalytic tradition. But there's so much there that uh, that can help, you know, therapy-wise. So in a way, there's there's a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater, even among the, even in the therapy world. Um, so I, I'm just all about trying to say that uh, you know emotional development and uh, trying to heal our neuroses is not opposed to a meditative point of view, and you know, and that at best, what you were saying when people are drawn to the one. You know, and they they really do just want to get away from themselves and uh, open to something greater than themselves. 
that when, when they actually go to that place, it shows them where they're stuck in the personality realm, you know, so that they have to turn around and do that work, whether it's with a therapist or on a meditation cushion or with a spiritual teacher. But, but, you know, everyone finds that they have to do that work or they just end up feeling stuck. Yeah, exactly. Well said. Uh, and you have a funny thing in here. I don't know if you've ever, Krishnas has a comment here, but uh, you were talking about your self-concept being based on uh, kind of the flimsy background of identity. <laughs> talking about Ramdas talked about that all the time. And uh, so he said, well, if I trace myself back to my beginnings, I find Mickey Mouse. Do you know, <laughs> Krishnadas has often said, you know, I go to India and get so completely absorbed into life there and family life and, and spiritual life and religious life. And the models, I see the models that, that they had in, in India, like Hanuman, the selfless uh, monkey god, totally devoted to love and service. What do we got? Mickey Mouse. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I didn't put that together when I wrote that. Yeah. I, I wrote that because if I trace my earliest, um, you know, sort of self-identity back or my earliest feelings back, I remember myself in nursery school and my mother coming to pick me up in nursery school. And I didn't really want to leave nursery school and go home. And she would, but she would sort of bribe me by saying the Mickey Mouse Club was on, uh, on TV. And I had a thing already for Annette Funicello. <laughs> so, uh, so that's, that's what you my, ever my, line my up on that is, one, but is based on those early crushes. <laughs> oh, God. I have a similar thing at kindergarten, and yours is like way more wholesome American. Whatever. I was, of course, I was Canadian in Montreal, of course, nothing. And I just had a complete trauma when I went to school uh, because my mother, unfortunately, forgot to give me, I only was wearing boots. We called them galoshes. Yeah. In I don't know if that's something Canadian. Yeah, we or have what. galoshes. Yeah, yeah you in have Connecticut. Galoshes. We have oh, galoshes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, and then I had nothing to change into wearing regular shoes. Can you believe? So I walked in and I thought everyone's going to just point this out and I'm going to be completely embarrassed. So I walked in with that totally debilitating emotion and immediately felt that the kind of uh, polarization that, uh, I mean, I'll, I can remember this thing as if it's, yeah. you know, looking at my palm. I yeah. mean, extraordinary. Yeah. And so, and just more fodder for we all need to look at our stuff. Well, that's, sure. I'm, I'm interested in that because what, what I find, uh, going on meditation retreats, you know, on, on, um, two week silent Vipassana retreats where mm. you're really alone with your own mind, you know, mm. trying to be mindful. The, um, the kinds of memories that come up. Uh, are just like that one yeah. with the galoshes, you know, yeah. like real, like the random memories, but are the sort of seeds uh, upon which our identities form. And uh, seeing, seeing something like that in the great spacious silence of the meditation retreat really does something to relieve you of the 
whatever it is, the shame or mm. the embarrassment or the uh, defensiveness, you know, that uh, uh, you might have been carrying since that kindergarten time, yeah. you know? So it's just interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's a lot in in your book here from, it's a central theme, it's an obvious central theme around self and what is self and what Buddha says about self. And in this little thing that you talk about, Mickey Mouse, um, the you say the self is constructed on a very insecure foundation. We emerge from nothingness and cobble ourselves together out of the arbitrary and unbidden experiences that come our way, which is what you just said. So let's talk a little bit about self. I mean, there is... Ramdas has talked about it. We we did a film called Nobody uh, Becoming Nobody, and he talked a lot about identity and roles and the way in which we establish a self, and then going through life and the end result, hopefully being. I mean, the Buddhist way to put it would be empty of self, and becoming nobody. But nobody can become nobody until there's somebody first. Right. And yeah, can we talk a little bit about that self that then allows us perhaps to see beyond that limited self, which is what I believe um, when we talk about no self in Buddhism, that's what we're talking about. Well, we could try to talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all. Um, the thing about Ramdas uh, becoming nobody. Uh, is that even at the very end of his life, you know, when he was um, probably the most <clears throat> open and true uh, to who he always wanted to be, you, you know, when you might mm -hmm. say he was the most nobody, he was so strongly somebody. Even in his nobodiness, mm. that that you know, it, like you knew you were with Ramdas, you weren't with nobody, you know, you were with somebody whose whose energy was so beautiful, you know, so um, kind uh, uh, that uh, that whole dialectic, you know, that whole tension between somebody and nobody. I think it, it's much more nuanced than the language leads us to believe. Mm. So uh, I always like to tell the story that I heard from Robert Thurman, uh, who had a Mongolian Tibetan teacher, mm, yes. you know, who used to say to him, you know, you, you Thurman or you Westerners, you, you, uh, uh, you want to understand no self. He, he would say, you know, problem with you is you think you're really real you, you know <laughs> yeah, it's not that you're not real yeah. it's not that you're not real that you don't exist you know in yourself that you're not special in yourself you know but you think you're really real so it's the really real the 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 dalai lama i try to describe this in the book the the dalai lama always says uh it's not that this it's not that the self is nothing you know it's that it, it doesn't exist the way you think it does it doesn't exist the way you imagine it should so that so I'm, that's what i'm trying to get at you know mm -hmm. like we uh, and i talk that the mickey mouse thing that you're quoting um i talk about how in my early life 
I was felt very unsure. You, you know, it felt to me from the inside that I didn't have the right kind of self or enough of a self or as, you know, as solid a self as the other people around me, my parents, my teachers, the boys in my class, certainly the girls in my class had much more real selves than I seem to have, you know? Um, <laughs> and uh, um, what I found is that before Buddhism, that feeling was really a problem, like what's wrong, you know, some kind of insufficiency. After Buddhism, uh, I'm much more comfortable with not knowing what myself really is, you know? It's like much less of a problem because Buddhism kind of opened up for me that it doesn't have to be any fixed way, you know? And Ramdas always used to say uh, in one of his great teachings, I think, you're not who you think you are, mm. you know? Mm -hmm. Or he might've said, you're not, you don't have to be who you think you're supposed to be would be another way to say that. Mm. So the, the idea of instead of a, a fixed self that we know to have a, a more fluid sense of self that encompasses what we don't know, you know, that this, the subtitle of the book, you know, uncovering a hidden kindness in life or in the self, you know, that there, that these, there's something in us that we don't entirely know that might be truer than what we do know. You know, I think that's a great Buddhist concept. Mm. So there was this expression in, uh, in the eighties, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. And, and I, I can argue for that uh, maxim or against it. Uh, in the eighties, I argued against it saying, you, you know, how many, somebody, how many of us really think that we're somebody, you know, a whole lot of us are struggling with feeling like we're not somebody enough. Mm. Do we have to be somebody before we can, uh, do the, the meditation thing. And I don't think so. I, you know, and I remember I, I had a conversation with Gelek Rinpoche, mm. a well-known mm. uh, yes. Tibetan well. Lama who taught at the University mm. of Michigan, went to Cambridge, spoke good English, very, very educated yeah. in the West. Um, and I tried to, I was doing my psychiatric residency then, and many of my patients were struggling in a suicidal way with debilitating feelings of emptiness, you know? Uh, and I said to him, is that emptiness that my patients have? Is that the same emptiness that the Buddhists talk about or a different mm. emptiness? Mm. And he said, he started making this motion of like hitting a, a blacksmith, hitting a, he said, like, well, what do you call that thing that a blacksmith hits? And somebody said an anvil, you mm. know, like a blacksmith hitting an anvil. He said, I think those are untrained minds that you're describing striking on the truth of emptiness, you know? but they don't have the training. They can't handle the feeling. So they mm. get like freaked out, you know, and want to kill mm. themselves um, or, or become anorectic or whatever it is, you know? So um, my argument against you have to be somebody before you can be nobody is that you, you could struggle with being nobody and learn how to hold that feeling in a way that doesn't destroy you. Mm. And that's actually a portal. It's actually a window into some deeper truth, you know? Uh. Wow. So, yeah, that's great. Mm. But going back to Ramdas and how you talked about him in his latter part of his life, and uh, he was a real somebody, <laughs> you know, wasn't he? He was, he was. And but I would say at the same time, one of the things that um, really changed for him, yeah, and he would have said this himself, I'm pretty sure, is the reality that 
the somebodyness that he was quite well aware of, he just wasn't as attached to it. The attachment went away. And in that way, he was able to be with people uh, in a way that I've seen very, very few normal humans, not, you know. He became more himself. That yeah. was my feeling. Like the yeah. sort of the fake thing. Uh, where where he was the actor and the you know the the stand up comic and the you, mm. you know trying to please and all that like like that that really did fade f- fade out and what was left you know was like you know, somehow more him I I think yeah uh, but what does that mean you know like like who who are any of us really like that's that Zen koan of uh, what was your face before you were born? Yeah. You know? yeah. So. <laughs> yeah really. um, since we're talking about Ramdas, uh, this is a major intersection for both of us in our lives, obviously. Uh, so you talk about, oh, here. Okay, here's a, a little story about somebody else that we love, Joseph Goldstein. I can't tell you how many times on these podcasts, no matter if I have Joseph on or not, that I am pointing them to his book, Mindfulness, and I'm going to point everybody again to that book. To me, is the it's just the greatest book in terms of being able to, uh, for Westerners to really have a, to get a grip on what that really is, not the ubiquitous, ubiquitousness of that word in our culture but more really the depth of what it really is. He's just extraordinary. So he was at one of our retreats in Maui, and uh, a young man who was driving him around, part of our group, uh, just turned to him and said, Joseph, you know, I'm just on the path a few years, in mid-20s or something. Um, I would love some sage advice from you. It just want, If you could give me one thing, for me to contemplate, what would it be? And Joseph, without, you know, there wasn't even a Missing beat. Missing a beat, yeah. Nothing. He just turned to him and went, stop clinging, you know. This, so this is something that you talk about uh, that uh, you, you had been working with. And the way, this is interesting for me. Um, you talk about, uh, Buddhist psychology adding another dimensional t- uh, dimension to conventionally trained Western therapists. And um, it's all about clinging. And um, uh, you have one other, um, which we haven't mentioned, but uh, there's a wonderful compendium of various uh, uh, great uh, Japanese uh, masters, you know, certainly masters of koan and so on. And Hakuin is one of them. And uh, you you talk about kind of being able to be on more than one uh, plane at the same time, which is really what Ramdas emphasized so much in in the uh, the years that he spent on Maui. I don't, I can't tell you how often he talked about we can do this. So you're attending to the conventional. Um, trauma issues, not conventional trauma, the conventional therapies for these trauma, trauma issues. And yet you are also, which we've been talking about, you are also absolutely attuned 
to the inner work that is necessary to evolve beyond them, but without leaving them in some kind of corner under a rug, etc. So I, I just think that that's something. I, Ramdas was really on to something there. I, I can see it in my own life on on a day to day basis. Um, and you and it's you talk about it. We can go further than that when you talk about uh, you had a whole dialogue. This is interesting. You had a whole dialogue with Joseph around uh, grief and and Buddha. I think you had a Buddha had lost two of his closest friends and devil uh, disciples and said something like, I lost the moon. And then neither of you could find Buddha ever saying something like that, but certainly it created a vast emptiness in him. And at the same time, there was he was unmoved in the deepest part of himself. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's a really critical uh, moment in many, many people's lives, especially around dealing with uh, trauma and not avoiding it, yet also that's where the two planes come in at the same time. Um, the the story that you told about Joseph uh, with the, the young acolyte and, and Joseph's uh, 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 refrain of stop clinging uh, re- reminds me of uh, Joseph's teacher in India was was a man named Manindra, mm. who uh, who I uh, met uh, um, uh, several times uh, uh, when I was young. Um, who and he introduced me to in Bodh Gaya at my first. Uh, well, yeah, well, you had book. that. Yeah, I met him in Bodh Gaya for the first time too, mm. and. Um, uh, our mutual friend uh, Jack Engler, who's another Buddhist-influenced uh, psychotherapist, um, uh, also went to Bogaya specifically to meet Manindra uh, and to be given meditation instruction. He got like a Fulbright or something to go mm. and study with him. And uh, Jack Engler tells a kind of similar story, a beautiful story about being in Bogaya with Manindra, wanting to learn meditation. And... Uh, uh, and Manindra refused to teach him meditation. All he would talk to him about was yeah. the state of his bowels. You know, like, how are you? And he told him to go to the market and get fleecy seed, that yeah. if you mixed it with water, it was good for constipation. If you yeah. mixed it with milk, it was good for diarrhea. <laughs> so it all comes versa. back to me, yes. Uh, something like that. Yeah. And uh, this went on for like several weeks, and Jack grew more and more frustrated. And finally went for a walk with Manindra behind the Thai temple one day and said to him, uh, you know, Manindraji went, when are you going to teach me the Dharma? When are you going to teach me the Dharma? And Manindra just turned and looked to him and he said, the Dharma? You want to learn about the Dharma? The Dharma just means living the life fully. Mm. That was his meditation. That was his, you know, mm. stop clinging. So that living the life fully in the, the Indian way of saying, instead of, instead of saying living life fully, it's living the life fully, yeah. which I sort of like. Yeah. Um, living the life fully, I, I think, means allowing yourself to grieve when you've lost someone, mm. not thinking that you should be immovable, you know, like a, like a statue, uh, not thinking that you shouldn't feel pain, not thinking that you have to be happy all the time, um, making room for the entire range of emotional life. Um, that includes the grief that comes when you lose someone who you love, because that's what love does, is uh, um, 
set you up for feeling lost. Mm. So the conversation you refer to with Joseph that I talk about in the book was in the context of a patient of mine who Joseph also knew who had lost a child mm. and uh, who was bereft over having lost a child. But because she uh, um, came from within a spiritual community, she um, a, a lot of people around her were were doing the thing of, you know, uh, it's all in God's plan mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. time to get mm-hmm. over it and, uh, uh, you know, uh, let her go and, and all of that. And, and, and uh, me as the therapist, uh, I'm trying to make room for living the life fully, you know, which includes actually experiencing the loss. And um, so I, I tried by describing the conversation I had on the side with Joseph about this to um, point out uh, that there was room within a Buddhist uh, understanding for having deep resonant uh, uh, feelings. Uh, um, that, that it doesn't mean that we don't understand impermanence uh to still feel the uh, the distress that comes when uh, impermanence manifests itself yeah you actually said now that i remember uh you thought this was a little bit cold on joseph's part a little that it, it veered a little too much into uh detachment and i and i'm i mean i listen as far as i'm concerned joseph you know, I would never counter anything except for the fact that I, I really believe this is correct and that uh, not engaging with it is not living fully, yet becoming, um, which hmm, happens a lot, I think, with many people, is an indulgence of everything in your life to go into that particular little, uh, to the not little, but particular happening, whatever loss. And uh, it's tricky. Very yeah, and tricky. I don't. I don't think Joseph disagreed. I think it was. It was really a semantic discussion. You know, it's just mm. the way that people take the way that people hear the Dharma when it's presented in a certain way. Yeah. So, um, I, I ended up telling the story of a, a Tibetan Lama whose child died, and uh, all his followers are distraught to see him being distraught, and they they say to him, uh, "But mm. didn't you?" Master, you know, didn't Lama Guru, uh, didn't, haven't you told us that life is illusion? And he says, Oh, yes, but the loss of a child is the greatest illusion. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. You know. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, we're kind of running out of ta- time, but I did want to bring up one. I mean, listen, we can do, I don't know, three, four, five of these podcasts and go through all this. And uh, maybe we will. But I did want to bring up your, you do bring up anger and, and I, you probably don't remember, but of course this is something I've been dealing with. I mean, we are all dealing with that, I think. And you talk yeah. about the commonality of it for yeah. sure. But uh, yeah, talk about that a little bit in, in relation. Well, I, um, the, the way I was imagining the book, the structure of the book, mm. you know, I, I arranged the psychotherapy sessions according to the four seasons so it was like, you know, uh, winter, spring, summer, fall kind of thing. And then for, for each group, for each season of sessions, I wanted to structure it according to the Buddhist path of insight. So it starts out with clinging, as you mentioned, and the next section is mindfulness. 
And the next section is insight, meaning insight into no self, et cetera. And then the, the fourth section was going to be compassion. And I, I wrote up all the sessions and showed it to my editor. And she's like, yeah, this is good, Mark, but the fourth session that you're calling compassion, every, every session is about anger. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't know if that's really going to fly. So I, I, I was like, yes, that's intentional because in, in order to develop compassion, especially from a psychodynamic point of view, in order, the empathy is dependent on navigating one's own anger. You know, it's only when one can forgive the, the other for hurting your feelings and making you angry that you can b- begin to be uh, empathic of their experience as other than you, you know, uh, like you can't control everybody and make them just serve your interests. You know, that's the, that, but that, but that need is in all of us. That's the clinging, you know, and, and that's where so much of the anger comes from so much of the aggression. Um, so in, in order to develop kindness you you first have to come to terms to some degree with your own aggression so a lot of the sessions in the final part of the book were about that 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 evolution you know from from grievance to gratitude i I think i talked about it Mm. um and so i changed uh, how things were structured and it, it now goes from clinging to mindfulness to insight to aggression and then there's a final chapter where that it, that is about kindness. So uh, so it all does lead there. But only if uh, if we can learn to deal with our own inner violence. That's what uh, yeah. I set that up as opposed to the inner peace of the Dalai Lama. You know that I understood that what the Dalai Lama was talking about in terms of cultivating inner peace was actually a, a reckoning with each of our own tendency towards uh, towards violence mm. either directed inwardly in terms of self-castigation you know or directed outwardly in terms of the more obvious manifestations of anger yeah so everybody uh who's listening just think about how we rail out at this uh aggression that is going on worldwide and certainly the polarization aggression in this country is at its peak, seems to be. And uh, then think about how you talk to yourself and the way in which one talks to oneself. And the and the aggression there is uh, extraordinary. Yeah, and well, until- that's, the thing. that's the thing that people often ignore is in the privacy of their own minds, how yeah. are they talking to themselves? And, yeah. you know, and that's not right speech. No, not at all. And but that maybe everybody doesn't that point to the fact that we do need to deal with this within ourselves if we think we are going to help anything around us. When when I was when I was visiting with Ramdas in the the year mm. before he died, on his puja, you know, on 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 his shrine where he had pictures of Maharaji and Hanuman and uh, you know this one and that one, he also had a picture of Donald Trump. That had, that had replaced the picture of uh, George W. Bush, you know? So uh, e- even on that puja, I think mm. you could see Ram Dass working with his own anger yeah. and uh, trying to cushion it, uh, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, one last thing. This this is, uh, I almost forgot, but I, I did want to ask. So there there's, uh, I don't remember what part of the book, but there's a talk about, um, 
gurus mm -hmm. and people wanting gurus yes. and chasing after gurus and yeah the guru is within and you know that whole uh, perspective you speak to quite well and it's a perspective that is you know fairly common in all of our now when yeah. i say our friends i mean ramdas me krishnadas and, and others that you know from that from our um, satsang and then ramdas <laughs> we used to have all of our buddhist friends you know at the at the retreat at one time or another and ramdas was always being careful whenever he talked about soul he would look over at Jack or something, and it's kind of grin, and, and Jack would go, "It's okay, it's okay, we can talk about soul." But there was a, a very pointed thing in the book about, you know, don't the chase gurus. gurus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, and but so here, but here's Mark, what I, I wanted to say. Meanwhile, this is all true, but meanwhile, you all of you. This is, <laughs> us and them here a little bit of, but all of you guys from the Buddhist tradition are, are have been very close in with one or another of us or a bunch of us knowing about our relationship to this guru and how it has informed our lives uh, is is a is an extraordinary thing, given the reality of what you were saying in this book. How do you reconcile that a little bit? Oh, Not something, well, it is public. We're doing a podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't think it's hard to reconcile. The, um, uh, the part in the book where I talk about that is in the context of uh, teaching at a, at a retreat center called Menla and the Catskills with, with Robert Thurman. With Robert, yeah. And um, someone in the audience uh, was like asking, had just read Autobiography of a Yogi, the, the um, yeah. uh, Yogananda book, mm. uh, where the where the idea of a guru is is central, and and they were saying, you know, like, do I need a guru, basically, and if so, uh, uh, where can I find them? And um, uh, what I one of the things I love about Thurman is um, his command of the language. You know, he really, he speaks, he knows Sanskrit, he speaks Tibetan. So he went into a whole thing right away, like guru, the word guru means heavy. Uh, you know, if you trace it back, mm. uh, me means heavy. And it comes from the Brahmin thing, it comes from the, the, uh, the, the, that uh, uh, ancient tradition of uh, the, the heaviness of the guru sits on your forehead, you know. Like you, you, like it's what you're supposed to uh, aspire to, uh, to either to submit to or to become. So he said in in Tibet, when under the influence of Buddhism, that word guru got got translated as lama, which had more of the meaning of teacher. Or and then he went into a thing about the uh, Kalyana Mitra about spiritual yeah. friend. So the linking of you know, or the evolution of the idea of guru uh, from the the heavy paternalistic thing sitting on your forehead to the spiritual friend, which has you know more of the maternal uh, uh, or feminine energy to it. I think um, I think is very important. And then he told a story about how. Uh, in Tibet, they have a saying that the best guru is the one who lives three valleys over because, <laughs> yeah. uh, cause, cause you're, they still yeah. have the idea of the guru because you're supposed to be able to visualize the perfected being of the guru, you know, and then, 
imagine yourself enveloped in that perfection. Uh, but if you know the guru too, uh, too intimately, you're going to see all of his or her flaws. So uh, you won't be able to imagine them as a perfected being. So I, I like that. Although my experience, as I talked about before, is meeting all these people who I would be prone to idealizing, getting to see them with all their flaws actually felt like the real spiritual friendship because then I didn't, you know, I could, as I said before, just learn how to be myself. So, uh, so I think somewhere in there is the resolution of that question, you mm. know, that the mm. guru that you guys had who changed everybody's lives, you know, changed my life without my even knowing, uh, him, uh, was a spiritual friend, you know. Mm. Not just to all of you, but to all of us who are still listening to, you know, these, these stories. Yeah. So I think that's guru at its best. Mm. I like what you just said, though. It never dawned on me, but the uh, mother, basically, the way that that was brought into it. And, and who did he, I'm talking about Neem Karoli Baba, who was the emissary, basically, that he sent out there? Ramdas. Yeah. And Ramdas was the most balanced male female being regular human that I ever met. Yeah, I don't know how balanced he was. Well, he was, he can't go too far. A little uncomfortable with his male yeah, female. Uh, yeah, yeah. But took by him the a end long of his time. Life, took him a long yeah, time. Yeah, to, by the end of his life, he. Yes. He, yeah. But yes. The, just the fact of his caring, the way that he cared. Yes is the example of that. Yes. That, and he was the one that, you know, Neem Karoli Baba, I don't, I don't think anybody's there picking. Maharaji, you, you knew that there was nobody doing shit like yeah. at all, but it certainly happened and it was part of universal yeah. mind. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. great. I love that. Uh, thank you, Mark. Yeah, you're so welcome. So, so nice to talk with you, Ron. Yeah. Great to hang out. Everybody uh, in the show notes linked up. When is, when is the book? Is the book out or is it coming it's out? It's coming out on uh, um, July, uh, July, on January 11th. Yeah. So that's tomorrow, Mark. That's, <laughs> I don't know when you're broadcasting this. It's uh, coming out tomorrow. <laughs> It'll be probably a couple of weeks later. I don't yeah. know. But yeah. uh, bottom line is we'll have links and all that and, and, and link up to uh, other work uh, that and other books that uh, Mark has uh, written. And um, thank you, thank you, thank you. This is uh, Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and catch all of the people we were just talking about and more. And more. <laughs> and more. So we're really lucky. Thanks again. We'll see you thank all you. next week, everybody. Thank you, Mark. Okay, great. Bye, Roger. Bye. Bye.